You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website, thisisbaptistchurch.com. Amen. Well, I tell you what, remain standing for a moment. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And um, I had to go to the doctor a while back, and he told me kind of make sure I'm watching stress and everything. And I thought, well, you know, maybe for a while I'll just get down here on the floor and uh, speak from down here like on Wednesday nights. In, in, in preaching in ministry, and I may be a little bit loud here, I feel a little loud to me, but in ministry and preaching, we use a term uh, expository preaching, which means verse by verse, going through the Bible like we do. Exegesis, exegeting scripture means that we're pulling things out of the scripture. We're looking at what the Bible teaches, what Paul intended as he was writing this letter to the church of Corinth. I also, there's another term a lot of people don't use, preachers don't like it, they seldom use it, extemporaneous. And you may say, what does that mean? Extemporaneous means this, it means that you preach without notes. And basically what you do is you pack your brain with all kinds of material, study hard, put all that in there, and then kind of allow the Holy Spirit to pull it out. Extemporaneous is very difficult. Uh, for the Presbyterians in the room, I pick on Therese, but Therese, and this is your sister? Good, it's good to have her here today. Good to see you. I can see resemblance. I can. But anyway, uh, for Presbyterians, R.C. Sproul, who taught me in my doctoral work at Reformed Theological Seminary, R.C. Sproul hated notes, and he was adamant that the preacher should never use notes, and, but I'm not quite as gifted as he is. But anyway, I, I'm preaching extemporaneous. There's just a couple of little things that I did want to remember. Last week I was doing that. I got up here, did just like I'm doing. And, and I alluded to the fact uh, I was talking about being plugged into a local church. And one of the things I said, you know, this is something I would even tell my own daughter. You need to get plugged in a local church. Well, my daughter, Emily, who's not here and who's out kind of visiting right now, trying to get a church maybe closer to home, uh, she said, Dad, those people may think I'm not going to church. Well, let me tell you, Emily, my daughter, is a committed Christian, deeply committed. She's never, I don't think, messed a Sunday. She's right now just kind of looking around, looking for some decisions as to her family, but is a great woman of God and is, believes in the local church, very much plugged in there. So I just wanted to say that. That's a problem when you're doing extemporaneous. Now, real quickly, Paul is writing a letter to the church of Corinth. Corinth is like Las Vegas of the New Testament. It is not a very good place. There's a lot of immorality. The temple of Aphrodite was there. There were over a thousand temple priests. People saw sexual contact, sexual uh, in, uh, intercourse with priests uh, at the temple of Aphrodite is just a way of life. Uh, they believed in fertility gods. So there, were, uh, there was a lot of corruption in the city of Corinth. Paul, gets a Paul is in Ephesus, and he has a delegation from the church at Corinth and they come with all kinds of questions, all kinds of problems. This was a bad church. Uh, they got drunk at the Lord's Supper. They called it the love feast. Uh, they had a man living in an incestuous relationship 
with his stepmother. They had problems with the members suing each other, going to court. They had problems understanding theology and the resurrection. So there were a lot of issues. So Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, and he's dealing with a problem. Now, last week we started... This week, we're going to finish chapter 5. And then next week, I've got Ledge. Ledge graduated from MC Law. He is now a lawyer. And I've asked Ledge to take a couple of Sundays and talk to you and I about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and about what a believer does when there are problems in the area of legal issues, legal matters. So uh, you're going to get that over the next couple of weeks. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Paul said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I did not... Even though, um, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Let's pray again. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray, dear Lord, that you'll take this word and use it to speak to our hearts and lives. And we pray that, Lord, you cleanse me, use me as a tool in your hand. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Let me tell you, discipline, and we said this last week, discipline is an area of parenting that is probably the most difficult area that a parent will ever deal with. You know, do you discipline? How you discipline? Why you discipline? All of that is a matter, is a, is a factor. And when you're pastoring a church, a church is kind of like a family. And you and I sometimes, even in, in, in the family of God, need to understand and sometimes we have to implement discipline. Most churches today are not disciplining, are they? Can I ask you that again? Are most churches disciplining today? No. In fact, you can do, live, do whatever you want, believe whatever you want. You can put it on social media. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't make any difference anymore because most churches today are not practicing discipline. One of the churches that I do understand that practices is Grace Community, uh, which has been pastored for 52 years by John MacArthur. They are very much involved in church discipline. And I heard MacArthur make this statement. He said this, he said, you know, when you're a church that disciplines, people are not biting at the bits to join it. But it's a part of life. And it speaks to the credibility of the church. Now the problem is here at Corinth, in this delegation that's come to Ephesus, they tell Paul, they say, and probably it was Chloe's family, Chloe's household that Paul alludes to, they basically said, Paul, we've got a really big problem. We've got an individual in the church right now, this man, and he's in an incestuous relationship. He's shacked up. He's living with his stepmother. 
In fact, most people believe that this man had actually broken up the marriage of his own dad. Now, probably what had happened, this man was a widower. His wife had died, the mother of his son. And eventually he remarried and the son got interested. Boy, this would play great on a tabloid. The son uh, got interested in his stepmother and before long they're shacked up. He breaks up his own dad's marriage and now he's coming down the aisle wanting to join the church or be a part of the church. And he's tied up with his stepmother. So this is the context. And when Paul writes this letter, what Paul says, and I need you to look this way. What Paul says is, you need to deal with this. This is not good. Now, I, want to, I wasn't going to go here, but let me say this to parents. There's a couple of things in parenting. There is one thing, shame, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but there's another thing, secrets. Did you notice the title of the message? Dirty Little Secrets That Are Not Dirty Nor Secret Anymore. What I'm saying is a lot of times as a parent, you are taking, you're trying to determine at points of maturity in which you give your children information. You, you want them to reach a certain point of maturity and it's then you begin to give them information. Classic example is the birds and the bees, the talk. I remember I, I, I looked at my dad one time. I was, I was, you know, I was up in high school. <clears throat> I said, uh, dad, I said, when are we going to have that talk? He said, what? You know that talk, the birds and the bees stuff. And I'll never forget, he looked at me, and he said, well, son, what do you need to know? I said, I don't even know anything, I'm all right. You know, it's awkward, and a lot of times what a parent is doing, you're in the process of, of trying to relinquish certain information at a point when your children are mature enough to handle that. TV, music, Internet, all that's redefined that now, right? There's over, there's 1.2 million children that are watching TV at one o'clock in the morning in this country. So as I told the men a moment ago, you're not in Kansas anymore. Your children are being bombarded with information that maturity-wise, they're in no way able to handle. So this is the environment that you're in. And so the church is in a, the church at Corinth is in an awkward position. They've got a man that's in the fellowship of this church that's shacked up with this stepmother. And Paul said, listen, this is causing, this is a ripple effect. In fact, Paul said this, he said, not even in Corinth, what he says is it's common knowledge, everybody knows it. And he said, the pagans don't even do this. Gentiles don't even do this. This is serious. And this is affecting the credibility of the church. And if nothing else, you're putting parents who are trying to raise children, you're putting them in a precarious situation. Now, the first question is, we ask ourselves, well, who do you discipline? You know, what, what does the church do? I mean, you know, most of us sit here, and you know what we think? I ain't gonna do it. I know me. If I start trying to tell somebody what they need to do in their life, man, they're going to turn and come at me with both barrels. You know, I'm not in a place that I could tell anybody anything. How do you, why do you discipline? Who is disciplined? Listen closely. When a person's sin is publicly lived out, when you and I live our... Hey, listen. We all battle with sin. But let me tell you what we don't do. 
we don't pull that battle out for everybody else to see it. In other words, that proves guilt, conviction. We know it's not right. We know we shouldn't be doing this, living this, saying this, watching this, listening to this. We know that, so we don't want people, we don't want the preacher to know, we don't want Christians to know. Listen, we don't want the church to know. But when you start living your sin out publicly and you're not ashamed of it, then at that point the church has to discipline. Okay? It's like a child. Your child may rebel, but if you don't see it, there's nothing you can do about it. If they do it publicly, hey, listen, if a kid does this in the sight of their parent, what do you think that parent? Do you think that parent's got a problem? That parent's got a really big problem because their child is defiant, disobedient in the face of that authority. They're, they're daring the parent to say or do something, right? So anyway, a sin that goes public, and Paul said you're puffed up. Paul said there's no shame over this. I told Ledge last week, I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis that said, he said the human being is the only animal that can blush. No animal, no other creature on the earth can blush but a human being. And he said we're the only ones that need to. And what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth, there's no shame, there's no, you're, you're puffed up. Paul uses the word puffed up. Paul said you're, you're proud in verse 2 as if it didn't mean anything. And so what Paul goes on to say is Paul says, now everybody stay with me here. Paul says you're going to have to take this person living this rebellious, defiant lifestyle out in public and you're going to have to put them out of the church. He said, you're going to have to turn them over to Satan. Now, let me, let me, I want you to stay with me here. What Paul is saying is, this is the ekkaleo, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. If one of us begins to live in willful, defiant disobedience to the word of God, thronting the authority of the, of the authority of scripture, of the authority of the church, then the church takes us, okay, and puts us outside of the church when it turns, turning over to Satan means that I'm going to put this person in, back into the world. Now watch this. I want you to see this. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan so that what? What does it say there? So that his sinful nature will be destroyed and his soul will be saved. So what Paul is saying here, Paul's saying, listen, you're going to have to put this man, you're going to have to put this man, you're going to have to put this man out. Now everybody listen closely. We haven't done this very often. In fact, I don't know that since I've been here we've ever done it. We have approached people about defiant, willful disobedience. You have to understand something. Social media has redefined the church. Because most people have no shame on social media and they're just they're adamant. They're just going to live it out on social media now. So what happens is, is that on occasions we've had to approach somebody that was living in disobedience to the Word of God and more often than not they were living it in the public domain and if they, were, they might be doing it even on social media. 
When you approach that person, in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 15 through 19 says this. In that situation, Jesus said this. Well, in fact, turn there. Take your Bibles, take a left from 1 Corinthians, go over to Matthew 18. Because in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, watch what Jesus said here. He said, if you're, notice your brother. You're, you and I, and Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 5, we are not responsible for how lost people live their life. You have no right to correct or approach anybody about their lifestyle or disobedience to the scripture. You have no reason to approach them if they're lost. But if they claim to be a Christian, then you have every right. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. And first of all, what Jesus said, if there's a problem, go to somebody one-on-one. -on -one. You're not trying to embarrass them. You're not trying to necessarily shame them. You're going there and sitting down as a brother or sister quietly, privately, and saying, this has come to my attention, and I want to make you aware of it, and this is something that you need to repent of. Now watch this. Verse 16, but he, if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, if this person does not respond in a favorable way, is not repentant, then you would actually go back with two or three witnesses. You would go back with a brother or sister. This is not necessarily stacking the deck either. You would probably go with somebody that you would consider to be neutral. They're not necessarily your friend. They're not necessarily their friend, but they know what's right. They have spiritual credibility. And you take them, and again, you're approaching them saying, listen, you can't do this. You can't live this way. Now watch this. Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat them as a pagan or tax collector. What Jesus was saying is that finally you have to go to the church, and in that case, you'll be setting that person outside the fellowship of the church. This is like a child who's living in disobedience, and what you do is you put them in time out. If you put, hey, listen, this may be a thought. Imagine on Sunday morning if this were our time out here. Imagine that. Imagine you voluntarily said, you know, because I know this happens a lot, but you voluntarily said, you know, I have not been living like I should. I've been living in disobedience to the Word of God. I said things I wish I hadn't said. I've watched things I wish I hadn't watched. I've, I've done some things that I know were wrong, and I've lived against. Or you did it even publicly in the business world. You did it where you work or wherever, and you said, you know, I, I, I think I need to sit in a timeout chair. Or imagine we had a timeout chair. You see, the idea of somebody being in timeout means this. The timeout chair is not there. The timeout chair is over there up against the wall facing that way. You're in timeout. You're out of the fellowship of the family and you're in timeout. You don't eat. You don't watch TV. You don't fellowship with the family. You lose that. You're in timeout. That's what discipline is in the life of the believer. Now, here's two things. I want you to stay with me because this is what happens to us. When we have on occasion stepped into somebody's life and said that to them, that person's become rebellious and defiant, and you know what they told us? I don't care. 
I'll do what I want to do, and you people are no better than I am, and how dare you tell me anything. Now, I want you to take a right and go to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, verse 18 through 20, because watch what... Because these are people that, that, hey, listen, they have no problem being put out of the church. They don't care. I don't care. I don't even need to go to church. Now watch what John, John said, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Watch this, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belong to us. Now from there, go over to Hebrews, take a left, go over to Hebrews chapter 10. And this is even a stronger word here. Hebrews chapter 10, watch this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. The writer of Hebrews... In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If, note no, verse 16, I believe it's wrong to put a break there. If we deliberately keep on sinning, everybody look this way. What sinning was he just talking about? The, uh, the, uh, in a, the, the person unwilling to meet and to fellowship and to come together. That individual who refuses to come with the body of believers spurring each other on. You can't spur somebody on if you're not here. So the person who refuses to meet, to fellowship, I think that's what he's saying when he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, if he's talking about that sin, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin remains is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire. In other words, you may say, well, wait a minute, a person doesn't care. It doesn't matter to them. Well, hey, they're saying a lot. If, if John Williams came up to me and he said, listen, I'm getting ready to put you, Brother Jeff, in time out. You're not going to be able to come to my house and eat in my, living, eat in my house, eat with my family. You're not going to be able to, you know, to enjoy all the TV programs. You're not going to be able to sleep in that bed. You're not going to, hey, look, I'd look at John and say, I don't care. I'm not, I'm, I'm not in you. I don't live in your house. I'm not a member of your family. I'm not a Williams. I'm a Parker. But now if he says it to Micah, Hey, listen, Micah, his son, takes it very seriously. Wait a minute, Dad. Wait a minute, Dad. Did I understand that you said that I'm, I got to go to my room, I don't get to eat, I don't get to eat with y'all, I don't get to watch my favorite TV programs? I'm not, did what? Emily's going, it happened. Emily's giving that look like a mom. It happens. Micah's really being good right now. Huh? What, what I'm saying is this. You see, Micah interprets that differently than I do because this is Micah's family, the cost of that, the loving relationships, the fellowship, the, the privileges, the benefits, all of that are lost because this is Micah's family. It's not my family, so I don't care. Listen, 
you know what John was saying? You know what the writer of Hebrews was saying? When we approach somebody due to the sin that they're living out and they look at us and defiantly say, I don't care, you're no better than I am, it doesn't make any difference to me, and they walk away from this church, they are saying something far more than you and I ever realize. What they're saying is, I'm not a part of the family. And listen, they're not saying I'm not a part of, of this family. They're saying I'm not a part of the family of God. The family of God, the church doesn't matter to me. Number two, you may say, well, wait a minute. They, they go and join another church. Shame. One of the reasons I wrote the fail, one of the reasons that I wrote Killing the Church, a book called The Failure to, to Confront, is that how often do churches receive a member who's under the discipline of a sister church and they invite them to come into the fellowship of their church? That's the equivalent of, of somebody taking a cancer out of Sheila and putting it in me. A church that undermines a sister church and receives a member under discipline should be shamed should be ashamed. That's the equivalent of Emily getting on, we'll just pick on Mike a little bit more because he's consumed with whatever he's doing there. But that's like Emily, Micah comes in from school, she sends Micah to his room, you don't get to eat supper with the family, you don't get to watch your favorite TV programs, you're gonna stay in your room. John comes home and says, uh, Annalise, where's Micah? Hey Micah, come on, we're gonna go to Dairy Queen and get an ice cream. What has John done as dad to Emily's ability to be able to discipline? He's, he's not only gotten in the way, he made you the enemy, right? He now puts you in a bad light. Shame on John. But now he empowered Micah to have power over the authority. When people invite church members who they know are under discipline into the fellowship of their church without confronting that disobedience, they, in essence, are not only undermining the authority of a sister church, they are also empowering that member to live a life that's defiant and disobedience. Let me tell you, you and I must repent in order to come within the fellowship of a body of believers. Does that make sense? You know, Paul, look at, look at, uh, take a right, look at 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul did this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 through 20, watch what Paul said here. Paul said, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Now watch this, verse 20. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now watch what Paul says. What does Paul do with these two men? Whom I have done what? I have handed over to who? To Satan to be taught what? Not to blaspheme. So that's not un unusual. Look at, take a left from 1 Timothy and go over to Luke 22. Look at Luke, Luke 22, verse 31. In Luke 22, verse 31, you remember this scene here, Jesus and Peter. In Luke 22, verse 31, watch this, Simon, Simon. Always remember when Jesus uses your old name, you're in trouble. And he says it twice. Simon, Simon, Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon, Satan has what? 
has asked to sift you. That means in the Greek to take you apart. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. One more. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This may be a little bit of overkill, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to see this because this is important. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. Paul writes here to the church at Corinth. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of who? Everybody look this way. The word messenger, angelos, in the Greek is messenger. It means angel. Paul said, I was given a fallen angel, angel under the authority of Satan given to me to, be, to basically be a thorn in my flesh. It's not a thorn, it's a spear that's jabbing into my flesh in order to do what? to keep me humble. Paul did it in, to Hymenaeus and Alexander to keep them from blasphemy. Paul says in Corinth, hand this old man over to Satan, what? For the destruction of his flesh so that what? His soul can be saved. Everybody listen closely. It can lead to the sin unto death. I believe that part of the disciplinary process, even Satan, do you remember when he attacked Job, he attacked everything that belonged to Job, but then he finally attacked what? He attacked his health. You remember that? Job 42, verses 4 through 6, this is what Job said, I'd heard of thee by the hearing of my ear. Now my eye has seen thee. I repent and abhor myself in dust and ashes. You know what Job said? I'm repentant. To be turned over to Satan means that you and I are in a place where God is... Number one, the church can do it. Why would the church do it? What the church does is this. You ever hear people make this statement? Well, I may go to hell, but I might have a lot of company when I get there. A lot of my buddies are in hell. When I get there, we're going to have a high old time. Well, let me tell you what hell is. Hell is a place of outer darkness. Hell is a place of loneliness. Your buddies won't be there with you. Nobody else is going to be there. It's going to be all alone, time out for eternity. Time out cheer and agonizing eternity. Separated from everything good. For the believer who finds themselves alienated from the fellowship of the church and sitting here, for that believer, this is hell. I want to go back to church. I want to worship. I want to fellowship. I want to hear the teaching of the Word. I want to be in Sunday school. I want to be there on Wednesday nights eating my soup. I want to be a part of the fellowship. I want to be in church. If you can mess church and not mess the things of God, my friend, you need to check your heart. And so Paul says, turn them over to the devil. And this is what happens. And, and then he goes on, and, 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 and he goes on to say this. Look at verse, um, uh, well, I'm still at, uh, let's go back. 
Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Watch what Paul says here. He says, verse 6, Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. You know what Paul was saying real quickly? Paul was saying, if you don't deal with this, it's going to permeate your entire body of believers. In other words, if you don't deal with this sin, hey, listen, b bottom line is, and Mike is a great kid, so I hope they don't mind me picking on it. But the bottom line is, is that John and Emily know this. If we allow insurrection, rebellion, if we allow it to be in Micah's life, then what's going to happen is it gonna, it's going to affect Sadie, it's going to affect Annalise, it, it, it's going to affect David, it's going to affect the entire family. We've got, to, we've got to, listen, just like cancer, we've got to isolate this and we've got to stop it right here. Now, I want to ask every one of you a question. How much time do your children fellowship with, with their peers, with friends, and with, listen to this, you're not going to like this. How many of us put them in the company of programs that we know are destructive to their moral integrity, to everything we're trying to implement in, into their life? Hey, listen, if I got an ungodly, immoral coach, I can promise you this, I don't care if my son or daughter ever plays ball. If I've got an ungodly, immoral public school teacher and, I, and, I'm in, and my child is in a system that I absolutely, I will work three jobs and do whatever I have to do to ensure that they're in an educational system in which I know I can trust that educational system to teach them correctly. But if I voluntarily let them watch programs that I know are destructive to what I'm trying to implement into their life, then shame on me. Watch what Paul goes on to say here, verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to... Paul already wrote one letter. He wrote about four. One of them, the severe letter. He said, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, that knocks out a lot of our TV programs now, doesn't it? I mean, you can't even watch a lot of cartoons now. Verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. What Paul's saying is, listen, this is a lost world. You can't get out of the world. I'm not telling you to leave the world. And hey, some people do that. Parent, listen, do not live your life hovering over trying to protect your children and removing them from everything. Some parents are overprotective. They got their kid on a leash. Leash, I can tell you that they will rebel against that. You, can, you are in the process of parenting your child, revealing those secrets, giving them information. Sometimes they'll come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I don't understand. A friend of mine said this. What does this mean? You're bringing them. You're parenting. Your parenting is intentional. You're working at this. It is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week task that you and I are called to do, even as grandparents. And if you allow a little leaven of the enemy to come into the life of your children, you can get ready in a matter of time. It will literally, like a cancer, you'll be looking at your son or daughter saying, where did you hear that? Where did you hear that? 
Who told you that? Have you ever had your child say something that you knew had stolen their innocence? Oh, it ain't a big deal. Let me tell you how big a deal it is. Do you remember when God came into the garden one evening? And the Bible said he was walking through the, ad- the evening and he looked around Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. He said, Adam. Adam. Eve. Eve. Why are you over there? Why are you dressed that way? Parent, listen to what made God angry. Who told you you were naked? It's not funny. Because Adam When people live in defiant disobedience to the word of God within the body of Christ, they are putting you as a parent in a very, very difficult place. And they are stealing your child's innocence. Paul said you've got to deal with this. And if you don't deal with it, it will permeate the entire body and everybody's lives will be, perf- will be affected. And he goes on to say this, listen to this. But now I'm writing to you, verse 11, that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself what? A brother. So this is a believer. But is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler, with such a man do not even eat. Wow. In other words, Paul said, listen, you start fellowshipping with that, and before long that'll taint your life. You only sit down with an individual like that because you're trying to bring them to repentance. That's the only reason you... If you do eat with them, you're trying to convince them what you're doing is wrong, and you need to repent of that, and you need to come back. Now watch what Paul says in verse 12 and 13, because boy, this is messed up so much, and then we'll close. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's not my responsibility to judge Micah. It's John and Emily's. It's not their responsibility to judge my children or grandchildren. It's mine. And especially my children when they were growing up. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man from among you. You know what Paul said? You ever hear people say, well, I don't think, judge not lest ye be judged. Boy, that's misquoted, isn't it? If I start running around on her, if before long I leave her, and if in time I'm shacked up with some woman and I've walked away from ministry and I'm living an adulterous relationship with another woman, and you watch her come in here and grieve and cry and weep. You watch the worship leader grieve and cry and weep. You watch my kids and my grandkids just absolutely mourn. You as a church begin to say, my God, 
what happened to Brother Jeff. And I'm living in defiant disobedience, publicly living it out. And none of you love me enough to confront me? You have put me in the position where now God will intervene. God will take my health. God will take my stuff. And God will finally say, that's it. Coming on. Sin unto death. Destruction of the what, Paul said? Of the flesh, which can mean disease such as Job, or it can mean death. Ananias and Sapphira. I doubt too many people were joining the church the next Sunday after two people lied about what they gave and then dropped dead. We love you and you should love me and we should all love each other enough. I, ex I love Philip and I would expect if I hurt you, Sheila, and I was doing that, I would expect Philip to come with his tool, his tool pouch and a hammer. Look at me and say, Brother Jeff, I don't know what you're doing and I don't know what you're thinking, but I tell you what, I'm ready to beat the snot out of you if it takes waking you up. I close with this. Two things. Number one, my dad years ago had cancer. And the, doc, and the doctor told us, Dr. James Gordon, your, your nose and throat doc, ENT, he said, you got smoker's cancer. And he said, um, you know, uh, Ledger, it's, it's tough. It's a bad cancer. And he told us this. He said, now the longer the surgery, the better. He cut my dad from behind his ear all the way down his neck, all the way down his chest. He took out those lymph nodes. He took out even muscle. He said, I spent about six hours in surgery because your dad loves to work and I wanted to make sure that he could work overhead. He says, well, I wouldn't try, I didn't want to cut some of those nerves. My mom and I, I went to the bathroom in St. Dominic's, got on my knees and wept and cried because I thought my dad was going to die. I went back to the room. My mom was crying so loud you could hear her up and down the hallways. And we're sitting there waiting on the worst news. And this is, this is Dr. James Gordon. He was coming down the, he was coming down the hallway in St. Dominic's. He was talking to the nurses. Y'all doing all right? Good to see you. You know, he just carried on laughing, joking around, cutting up all the way down the hallway. Busted into that door, looked at us and said, I know it was long, but I got it all. Got every bit of it. He won't even have to have radiation, won't have to have chemo, won't have to have anything. We got it all. Dad's going to be fine. Do you know what our responsibility is as followers of Christ? To ensure that we not only are making every attempt to keep the leaven of sin out of our life because it's like a cancer. Because it not only affects my life. Hey, listen. Philip, he would do that. But Philip's not worried. Philip may be able to process my stupidity and my late life nutcase attitude and what I'm doing. But that little boy laying there, Brooke, he can't. Daddy, what happened to Brother Jeff? Daddy, why does Caleb cry all the time and Ethan? 
You see, Philip's watching out for my integrity to make sure I'm the man I need to be, not just for his life and not just for all of you, not just for Sheila, not for my kids and grandkids, but for that little boy laying in a blue shirt, laying there right now, swinging his arm. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we ask you right now to wrap your arms around us, dear Lord, and may we feel your presence. We pray, dear Lord, for some in this room that may be at a place in their life where quietly sin is slipping back in. It's beginning to take up a, a place in their life and they know it's wrong. There may be some in this room that they're watching, they're looking at things, maybe pornography, there may be a relationship that they are dabbling and flirting with, but they know deep down in their heart that it's wrong. There may be some things they're doing financially that they know are wrong. There may be some things that they're beginning to dabble in alcohol and drugs, and they know that it's wrong. They may be getting caught up in gossip. They may be doing something that they know deep in their heart they know is wrong, and if they don't stop it now, they know that it has the ability to affect their life and the life of so many others. And right now, you're bringing that to their attention. There are others in this room, dear Lord, that they know that their life may be as best they can. Right now, they're living right. But they know somebody that's not. And you put that face, you put that person in their heart, and it's going to take everything in them to approach that person and to be honest and say, I may lose this friendship, I may lose this relationship, but I'm going to tell you that what you're doing right now is wrong. That's not, it's not right. And if you keep this up, you're going to hurt a lot of people and you need to stop this. There's some of us in this room that need some backbone. There's some that are listening on the internet by website who need some backbone. And I pray, dear Lord, that you'd give us that right now. And Lord, finally, I pray for those that do not know you. They've never been saved. They've never given their life to you. They've never come under the repentance of sin. And right now, you're speaking to their heart. They've got to open up that heart and say, Lord Jesus, come in, forgive me. Right now, dear Lord, be the Lord and Savior of my life. Dear Lord, write me in the Lamb's book of life. Let me, dear Lord, know that when I die, that I'll spend eternity in heaven. There's some in this room right now that they may look and they may say, Pastor, some may be listening. I feel as if I'm been, I've been turned over to the devil. Everybody look this way while we're still praying. I have. There have been times in my life that I've lived in defiant disobedience and I could just feel God's Holy Spirit finally say, you're not going to live that way. You want to run with the devil? You got it. It doesn't take running with the devil. It doesn't take the full consequences of sin very long before it will quickly bring us to repentance, to where we say, Lord, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to lose your fellowship. I need you. Let's finish this prayer. Lord, I pray today, whatever decision that we make them, filled with your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You come. You come. May never be a moment like this moment.